Hello, everyone. This is Noah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the Resolve Podcast. We're your resource for all things mental health, academic success, and personal growth. Devoted to helping students thrive and build the resilience to succeed in school and in life. Mr. Coles, thank you for coming to speak to us and our students on the Resolve podcast. Nice to be here, Noah. I called you Mr. Coles yeah, as opposed do to again. Luke. Don't do that again. <laughs> well, you can't divorce that part of you. Um, right. I called you Mr. Coles because I've known you in archetype or myth- mythological form throughout the years because of all the incredible friends that I know that were personally impacted by you at a young age at the Sterling Hall School in Toronto. So just tell us a little bit about your story from Sterling Hall or earlier. I know you like to tell stories. So tell me, go, tell me a story. Uh, Well, after university, I tried briefly to play tennis uh, overseas and see if I could, you know, make ends meet for a little while doing that. And I I wasn't really able to for very long. Had a bit of an adventure, came home and decided that I had this plan, sort of came out of nowhere. I would go to teacher's college. I would teach for about three years. Then I would do an MBA and and hopefully make lots of money after that. And I just had this, I had this craving to teach while still feeling, you know, at that age young, like I was 22 or so. And I just thought I I loved a couple of younger teachers that I had had. And I wanted to try that. I'd done lots of coaching of tennis at that point and enjoyed working with young people. So I sort of stumbled in by partly Hold on. Why was that according to you out of nowhere? Now it sounds like you're saying it's not out of nowhere. How did you uh, reach the decision at that age that I really wanted to do that? How did you know that that was the right possibility for you? Good question. Okay. Well, I guess it did come from somewhere, but I, I tend to, my, my younger self, in fact, really most of my life, I've in some ways not felt like I was in the driver's seat of my own life. And, you know, we're fast forwarding now to why I'm doing what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm a bit surprised in some ways that at that stage I found such a specific plan. I did know for good reason that I wanted to work with kids. I knew that. I knew that it was something that I was good at and and got a lot out of. So you're you're right to challenge that. It wasn't out of completely nowhere, but this very overly specific plan that I had that I then went on to overshare with, you know, my boss at the Sterling Hall School among others that I would do this for 3 years and then go. Not a great strategy for promotions and opportunities, but but, but I fell in love with it. I just had so much fun, especially in those early years. You know, it's a, it's a really special thing as a teacher. I could stop there, but it was especially, it was really special at that school because not only did, did we have time in classrooms together at Sterling Hall, we also had a lot of time traveling together, uh, canoe trips and winter dog sled trips and, and, you know, overnight bus trips. And that's where, you know, memories tend to stick and relationships really form. And it was in those early years, I'm doing everything for the first or second time with these kids. And so we're sort of experiencing all these new things together. And when I hit year three and it was time for me supposedly to leave teaching for, there were a couple of years where I said one more, one more, one more, I ended up 10 or Can we slow that down even just as a teacher, two, two things that I just want to ask you. Number one, in terms of how you became interested, you talked about your connection with kids and your the ability to, to, to make relationships in, in a positive way, have maybe good, be, be good influence. Do you remember any conversations that you had with somebody else in your life 
who also saw that in you? Did you, did you have any mentors or people that along the way said, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense, or I think you'd be great at that. In the coaching of tennis, I, it was, it was from secondhand. It was from parents often who would say to me, you know, I, I might've been very focused at different stages on what I was doing for someone's tennis game. And and I had a few instances where a parent would say to me, I, I think you're helping my kid with something bigger than tennis. Sport, of course, like almost any pursuit can do that. And, and you're helping him feel better about himself. You're helping him overcome some stuff. You're helping him with resilience. And I knew that mattered. When a parent sees something happening for their child and they thank you for it, you feel what it means. It's, it's significant. You can't miss that. And and that might have been part of it too, just feeling really valuable. I think I had parents at an early stage coaching make me feel valuable. We all need to feel that. And I don't know that I had felt that as much as I needed to or wanted to. And and so I, I, I thought, I probably thought largely subconscious that if I continue to work with young kids and I'm probably going to get some more of that. Yeah, it's really important to people that are maybe around the age, because who knows who's listening, people maybe around the age that you were at that time, is to pay attention not only to, on an individual level, you know, who am I, what am I good at taking the reflection to do that, but also to ask people around you, close people in your life, how do you see me? Because a lot of times we don't see ourselves the way that others see us. And it's really powerful that you got some feedback like that. At a, at a formative time that people said, wow, that really matters what you're, what you're doing. And it's, it sounds like it's deeper and more than just being a tennis coach. You're right. I'm going to quickly jump ahead before we lose that. I, I want to say that in, in this work that I'm doing right now, the one-to-one, primarily I'm doing one-to-one coaching with, with youth and, you know, young guys. And the Zoom has, we all know the disadvantages of Zoom over in person, but the advantage of it, one of the things I love is what you were just referencing. The, the client sees themselves, assuming they have a camera setting on, you know, that they see themselves and the person they're meeting with. It's really, I think, powerful to see yourself as you are talking about yourself. And sometimes our stories are of someone who we might think is, is not able to do the things even in a meeting that you're doing. Um, also really cool to see yourself on screen with someone who's really interested in you and, and helping you value yourself. Um, Obviously, mine wasn't through Zoom as a as a younger guy, but I love that for the medium today. And tell us a story about being a teacher at that young age when you, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to the teacher's college. I'm going to teach for a little bit. W- w- tell us a story. I mean, th- there's a very, you talked about not just being a teacher, but you're going on these trips. There's there's all sorts of things going on. Does Do any stories stand out about the way that you could be an impact, have an impact as a teacher? Yes, it's a two-parter. We did a canoe trip every every fall, about the third or fourth week of school. Perfect timing, just enough time in class to form something of a relationship and get to know each other. And then let's get out of this classroom setting. Let's get out into, into nature and challenge ourselves together, not just kids challenging themselves with the adults watching, but all of us together challenging ourselves. And out there, getting to be alongside these guys, I mean, everybody would cry on these canoe trips at some point. It was a long enough trip and a tough enough trip that we would do in the company of some wonderful people up in uh, Tomogamy that that everybody would sort of, you know, be encouraged and supported and, and if necessary, almost a little bit manipulated into going beyond their boundaries. 
And, and so to be alongside these guys when they would break down just a little bit safely, of course, but they would just break down a little bit to be alongside them. And it, it did feel at a very early stage of my career and life in that sense. Like I, I just felt so privileged, like for real, we say that all the time, but like, really, I felt so privileged to be witness to these moments. And sometimes I'd almost feel like guilty, you know, their parents should be here. I don't know that I'm, <laughs> What qualifies me to be here for these really important moments? And then part two is the end of every year. They did a really nice job of celebrating uh, at that school. We did a really nice job. And, and there was an event at the end of the year for the graduate grade eight class, very personal, warm stories being told of the year. And I, I, it just filled me up every year we had that occasion. And I would leave that. It's the end of the school year. So you can be tired. You can be having some thoughts of, maybe doing something different the next year, man, we'd have that night. And I'd walk out of there saying, I can't wait to come back uh, first week of September and start it all over again. Why? What happened? Because it's so meaningful. It's so, you just, you're sitting in the room and you're looking around and the things that the parents are saying and these, you know, even a boy who's like not exactly prone to saying anything very sentimental just does at that final stage of the year. Um, couple friends of yours even <laughs> you know it sounds very intimate it sounds it very is, intimate it, it sounds I mean, it doesn't sound like school to me it sounds more like camp yeah very close I, I intimate you. personal growth like that's such a special opportunity in the school system to be able to foster something like that i had i don't know that i ever had a school experience that i sensed these boys would would have uh but i certainly had some awesome experiences as a, as a little guy with the best teachers that I came across. And I had some really terrible experiences from some adults who were not kind or attuned or making me feel good about myself. And there again, is that, that data that just starts getting stored, right? Some people who made me feel really good in a way that mattered and some people who didn't. And so the organism starts to realize that's a, that's a place where you can make a difference. That's amazing. So you started to do that through teaching and uh, even the way you're describing being a teacher, not much curriculum going on. I'm sure you were a teacher <laughs> for, partic for a particular subject. No, no, I did. But I did. I, I, I loved, so I taught a bit of phys ed. I mostly taught English at that first school. I taught grade eight English and it was a course that quickly became kind of a poetry course with a bit of English around it. Um, what these boys would write. It was, I, again, I felt like I had the best job in the school teaching English, which gives you so much freedom and allowed me to get, I found with that medium, you know, poetry, no rules, just get right to the, to the crux of it. You don't have to sort of do this big buildup. It's not so formulaic as essay writing is. Just amazing things that these boys would create. I've, I always found that the artistic rooms around the school were where those 13 year old boys would, would really create magic in the music room and in the art room and, and, with, and through poetry. And so, no, I loved it. I loved teaching the English. Um, and phys ed was just nice for me to get out and run around a little bit. And, if it was a difficult relationship with a kid in a, in a more academic course, then that was a place where sometimes things could be a little lighter and improved. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, 10 years there, vice principal there for the last three years, never stopped teaching though. Even, even as vice principal there, I still was grade eight homeroom. I still coached a team almost every term and I still taught my, my grade eight English right up to the last day and terrific spot to have that first or first couple of professional chapters. And then, um, and then had an opportunity to be founding principal of a school called Blythe Academy Lawrence Park. People thought I was completely crazy to go from Sterling Hall to Blythe Academy because at the time 
a lot of people, I think, felt that Blythe was maybe not a very serious place academically. It was known more for its summer trips. It's like credit granting summer trip program than it was for brick and mortar schools. But it was in its really early days. And uh, the founder and owner there, Sam Blythe, was, was really wanting to change the way that the school was talked about. And absolutely was one of those people when he, when he met me at that point in my life and said that he wanted me to take and build the school. He was someone who was seeing more in me than I was certainly seeing in myself at that point. And isn't it awesome when we could meet people? What does people? that mean? Can you tell us what that means? I mean, he thought I was so qualified. He thought I was the perfect person to take a school in Lawrence Park. He knew that I knew the neighborhood and that by, you know, having taught tennis in the, in the area and, and of course, been at Sterling Hall for 10 years now. A lot of the families from that school were in that neighborhood. So he knew that I was, I was like a, a North Toronto person known by some and certainly very comfortable and familiar in that area. And, and he just saw me as ready. He just, I remember the conversations. He, I, I said, well, I'm, you know, I've never been a, a head of school. I've been an assistant head and I was under a very strong head at, at Sterling Hall and didn't seem to matter to him. And he just said, you've got this. And in fact, in my very early days, there was a teacher who I, I actually came in this the school had opened a few weeks before I, I started. And there was a teacher there who knew someone in the administration who was not someone that I felt really excited to work with. He, he, he might've been passionate at one point working with kids, but he certainly wasn't when I met him. And I, I, I called Sam and I said, you know, I'm seeing a challenge down the road that this person who I know has connections with some, some friends of yours, potentially you, I think he's going to be difficult. And, and, you know, maybe we can talk about that on a future date, like before the summer. And Sam got a little irritated with me and said, I, I don't, I'm not really understanding what you're, what you're saying here. If this person isn't your person, then why are we waiting? This is your school. I want you to run this school. I want you to build the school. So can you do that for me? That's what you're here to do. I said, okay, so what are you saying? Well, I don't know what I'm saying. And he said, how about Friday? How about Friday you have that conversation with him and you get somebody in there that, that you could be more excited about? Okay. And those kinds of moments, he was very empowering and so were others around me at, at Blythe Academy. I quickly, I think, caught up and decided, you know what, I am ready to do this. And, and we did. And, and another 10 years building a school. And Well, I want to pause. That's a, uh, that's a big moment. So a lot of people think that there's something weird about this imposter syndrome experience as if um, it, it's not normal. Or, and, and, and I always say, I always start with a, a meta big story, which is the story of Moshe, Moses at the burning bush. He's about to, for the first time, encounter the creator of the universe, God. And he's just a shepherd living his own life in a, in a random place by himself with a small family. And he's being called to rescue an entire nation from slavery. And who's going to know better than God, creator of the universe, that this person is the right fit for the job? But he goes, he's spending hour conversation after conversation. I'm not good enough. I'm bad. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to speak. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. This is the person who, you know, ultimately led a, led a whole nation out of, out of the greatest empire in the ancient world. And so... The bottom line about that is that the greatest people, and if you listen to any, any, any person talking about themselves that have done accomplished great things, you will hear this strange humility, this strange humility. Moshe is called the most humble man in, in the Torah. That's what he's referred to as. 
the strange humility that you're are you like they're like you're almost like are you joking that you think that about yourself that you really think that about yourself but it's genuine there's a genuine feeling with great people doing great things that i don't know maybe i'm not so good and then what they do with that is that they get into detail and they develop and they grow and they keep thriving and it doesn't go away necessarily maybe they have moments where they're like you know what i'm fitting for this but a sign of greatness in my understanding and in my opinion is somebody who doesn't really think very highly of themselves, not in a, oh, I'm terrible, I have nothing to offer the world ever, but but thinks a little lowly of themselves in certain situations and uses that as, as fuel and is able to then connect with the greatest resources and know when to ask for help and assert themselves slowly but surely. So it sounds like you had a bit of that imposter syndrome at the beginning, but somebody greater than you, further along than you, with greater vision than you saw you in a different way. And that really allowed you to work yourself into that role. I would agree with that. I would, I would add that I have parts, you know, different categories. And so when Sam was able to fortify me, I feel, and others too, and, and some teachers early on who, who sort of gave me the confidence and, and reassurance that, that they were, they were happy working with me. I, I grew to feel very secure and, I would say good about myself, like overcome that imposter syndrome in a role, in one of my life roles, you know, as principal of the school. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily always going to, it's, it's not comprehensive. I, I feel like I've had a lot of work, a lot of work to do, still ongoing, to feel good, not bad, you know, in, in several sort of different categories, whether it's right. as, whether it's as, as um, you know, worker, as athlete, as partner, as father, as you name it, like there are to really believe that we're we're good can take a lot of work. So I, I agree. And it's okay to have some doubt in the process. Um, yeah. But what's so amazing and incredible that you had was somebody else that uh, was able to to facilitate your growth in that way and say, you can do this. And, and you did do it. And so tell us about the success of the school. Yeah, it was, it was just a fabulous journey for 10, I guess, 11 years. I was there. We, the school opened in pretty dreadful space, like very <laughs> unimpressive space, uh, sort of above and below stores on young street, both sides of young street. We had about 20 full-time students in that first year we loved them they were they were tough young people to deal with as one would expect of a school that costs a fair bit of money and isn't established and isn't in good space you know these were these were young people who were probably almost every one of them were feeling this is my last chance to get the high school thing finished let alone finished well and and we just had i, I think we we started with two or three very strong teachers. And, and if, if there was one thing that I and the team did really well from the very beginning was never to compromise on the adults who would join the team. That it, it wasn't enough that they were hugely qualified or extremely knowledgeable in their teaching area. They really had to be people who were gonna connect with these fragile kids that we had. Um, you know, the, the average Blythe student in those early years it took a lot of time and work to get them to trust that we were with them. We were alongside them, that we really wanted them to be successful. And the evidence was 
in those moments where just for a brief moment, one of us might not get it right. Something as simple as looking at a watch when a student is telling you a story and how they would turn on us as if I knew you weren't with me because they'd been beaten down by you name it. I think in a lot of cases, an educational system that they can leave people feeling not great about themselves in some cases, but it could be life stuff. It could be parental stuff. Who knows? But we grew and we grew and we grew and we grew on the quality of the teaching and word of mouth. I don't think the marketing and, and even the marketers ended up agreeing was really what, what made that school grow. It was all word of mouth. It was students telling other students what, a, what an experience they were having, that they felt better in the building. And, you know, we became a school of 250 full-time students, 600 part-time students on top of that. We got into some great space seven or eight years later, having spent about a year in a in, in a build and sort of filling in restaurants and putting students in classes wherever we could, right right across you know beside roots and across from sporting life. I think Blythe Academy Lawrence Park kind of established itself as as one more here to stay kind of landmark um, building in the neighborhood. We quickly filled that space too and needed to take on a whole bunch of church space at the uh, church a block away. Um, but at 250 kids, you know, it's it was it was just so exciting to see what we had become. We were we had teams, we had student, you know, um, model United Nations that would travel and compete. We had meaningful student leadership happening. We were able to build the grade nine and ten class, even though initially we were a school that was basically only grade eleven and twelve. Um, just a really exciting to be alongside, you know, to be a part of, and and a phenomenal team. So super proud of it, and I don't. If, if that's if that's at the end of my life, if I'm one of those people that's lucky at the end of my life to be able to sort of look back and reflect and think about it all, if that's my proudest work chapter, I'm totally okay with that. It was it was it was awesome. It's weird to hear about it from the perspective of the principal because my subconscious and my bias towards those schools, that school in particular, on a very superficial level was two things. One, pay your grade, pay for your grade. Two, you don't really belong in the regular school system. And so that was the sort of like um, stereotype, which was, but when I think about it now, I think about it in a completely different level, like a totally different level. First of all, smaller classrooms, yes. intimate relationships, hand-picked teachers, yes. a totally different experiential learning environment. Um, people that are sensitive to rejection and being hated almost. I have people all the time, not, I don't know, all the time, described to me just feeling hated by people, by teachers, by administration. That's really hard to feel hated, even if you're oh wrong. Oh my gosh, that's awful. Yeah. To not, we're not blaming and saying it's always the teacher's fault, but when you, kids that feel hated, that's rejection. That's, I don't belong. Yes. I'm not good. I'm bad. Yes. Coming to and that school damaged, must right? have that's been a, damage. That's, that's damage. Yeah. I mean, that school must have been like redeeming on a deep level for people. We, we obviously, uh, you know, we didn't get it perfectly right for everyone, but you said handpicked teachers, also accountability for those handpicked teachers. A lot of teachers start out full of passion and energy and connection with kids and then lose some of those things. They get older, they have their own family, they start. You know, they've now taught the class six or seven or eight times, and they have this attachment to an outcome that they think took place four or five years ago, and they're teaching the class, and it's not going as well as they think it did a few years ago, and they get irritated. And we were a place where if the teacher lost that excitement 
And if we started to get different feedback from the kids that they weren't, they weren't feeling liked, um, cared for, engaged, uh, then we could do something about it. Wow. And I really loved that too. I, I thought it was, it was, it was in fact a service even to the teachers themselves because it meant that they were always working with people who were like positive and solutions oriented. We didn't have people who'd walk around the school and point down at the ground and say, that's not, not the way it should be. We just, that just didn't happen with the grownups in the building. We would, we would, these were people who would say, I, I, I think we can do better than that. And how about this? I think the teachers are a reflection of the school in a, in a weird way. Like it's almost, it's, yes, the students who came there, it was redeeming for them to have that level of d- deep support yep. and, and, and unconditional help and just attention and focus. But I bet you the teachers, it probably saved a lot of teachers too. I wonder. Well, I think it did. We had, we had some very emotional departures of teachers. You know, they would get jobs in independent schools or, or with public boards that offered pension benefit and salary that we weren't able to offer at Blythe. And they would go in tears. They just didn't want to leave. It was, it was such a, such a good place to be when we were at our best. There's so much intentionality that goes into something like, I think the challenge and sometimes what our organization is dealing with is we don't have a lot of checks and balances. We get to respond to immediate needs. A lot of the schools are pretty established, well-established and have systems that are operating over many, many, many years. And uh, it's not easy to make any movement or changes on the level that you were able to do uh, as exemplified by that story that you told us about you know, you walk in there and you say, I don't know about this teacher situation and it's, and something happens. So that's a special experience. That's a special place. Can you just tell us maybe a, a story that encapsulates that, uh, whether it's an individual or just something well, about that? Yeah. You know what I'd like to do is I'd like to give credit to, to the kind of kid that we had, because you just mentioned these well-established schools. So if you take, if you take a random sampling of 40 boys from UCC or 40 girls from Branson Hall, there will for be anybody listening, these are just Cana- uh, Canadian schools in Toronto that are uh, uh, segregated private schools. And, and you know, old growth forest, uh, they're, they're wonderful schools for, for certain students, amazing schools. I'm not in any way here to criticize them. But it's a fact that many students are at those kinds of schools because of a parent or a grandparent who went there uh, or because of the reputation and some pressure to be there. Nobody was supposed to be at our high school. Nobody was supposed to be there. Nobody's parent went there because it wasn't old enough to be a second generation school. These were kids who were meant to be at the local public school or the local old growth forest independent fee paying school. And they weren't where they were supposed to be and now they're here. And what you get then is a kid who, if they land, they are likely to be incredibly invested and loyal and appreciative and they help build the school. And did they ever? They would often tell us, not necessarily me, they would tell the teacher that they had connected with. If a student had come into the school and was being mean, you know, were we a bully-free school? Of course we weren't. But I'd like to think bullying never got as deep and as as far as it might have in other schools because a student would put a stop to it. They would say, you know what? We don't do that here. This is a place where we're nice to each other, not here. Wow. So... That's a special place, and there's you know clearly secret ing- just ingredients that go into healthy education that are are probably important for many schools to emulate. So maybe there's an opportunity to do consultation. I'm sure you do with teachers and school and administration about how to make the school a little bit more of that magic happen. 
why did you leave? Uh, uh, tell us about this journey away from being a principal and on to something else and something different. I hope it was, I hope it was more to than away from. Um, what I loved most about the being, being a principal changed over my 10 years. What happened when I first became principal at Blythe is I, I ended up feeling like I had replaced my class with the faculty. My class of boys that I was responsible for every year at, at Sterling Hall felt in some ways I felt very similar about the faculty at Blythe Lawrence Park. I was responsible for them. They were, they were the ones that I needed to know and, and, and have a read on and take care of and push in the right way. And then they in turn would build the school and, and connect with all the students. But that, that became my chief fire, I guess. That was what was really lighting me up at that point. But as the years went on at, at Blythe, I didn't lose interest or motivation to work with the faculty. But what, was, what I was liking most was the one-to-one with young people. And it's not an accident. I was getting older. I was going through some tough stuff in my own life personally. And because of some realizations that I was making at that point about my own childhood and how it had impacted things in my adult life, how it was impacting things in my adult life at that very time, I started to see more possible value in those one-to-one conversations that I was having with students. And I wanted more. You know, as a principal, there's an awful lot that of work that just that just presents itself to you. There's there's an incident, there's 10,000 emails, there's administrivia, there's just there's a lot of stuff that gets in the way of doing what feels like the most important work. Um, a colleague of mine, Adam Depontier, who's run various schools in Ontario, said a principal ought to do what only a principal can do. And I quite like that. You know, his example was often just being the person who's out front at the beginning of the school day to greet everybody as they're arriving. The teachers can't do that because they're in their classroom. They're busy. We should be able to do that. We should not be in our office answering emails. But but anyway, the one-to-one with kids, I was getting some, but I, I wanted more. And I thought there's a way to do that and throw in pandemics. So like the exciting stuff of school hadn't been happening for a couple of years. We didn't have the teams and the clubs and the extracurricular stuff that that can light a fire for a kid who might not be super excited to be in class. So it wasn't as much fun. It's not much fun being ahead of school during a pandemic. And so these things all kind of lined up and time for a change. And the change is really, if you think about your life from the core value sense and what other people told you in the feedback was your one, your relationships with, with students. So this to me is a natural extension of that. So what does coaching students look like a little bit? And, and for anybody interested in more detail, we're going to have a link to a complete tutorial that, that Luke now known as Luke has put together. Um, and it's a phenomenal program, phenomenal looking program to help students. Tell us a little bit about it and, and how it fills that deeper need that you've had to work with students. Well, it um, kind of built the plane while we flew it, right? I, I left being a principal and I had a few clients almost immediately, some, some nice trusting parents when they heard that I was leaving and that I was wanting to get into coaching young people, sort of high school, university age primarily. Almost as soon as I sent that email announcing departure, I got a few, not many, but I got a few writing back and saying, will you work with, with my son or daughter? So I had a few clients right off the bat. And 
needed to figure out, of course, what am I going to do with this? I had, I was newly certified as a, as a life coach. I didn't really know the difference at the time between therapy and coaching. I learned quickly that for me, the big difference is sort of the direction that we're accredited and able to move in with our client. A coach is about now and moving forward. And a therapist, as we all know, is someone who's who's qualified, ideally, even trauma-informed, to go back and deal with whatever's in the past and then bring it into the present, but can sort of stay back there for as long as is needed to process and reframe. So coaching a little more forward-oriented. Anyway, I started doing the work. I wanted to build a program to represent those things that I think schools should do more than it does. Schools have come, I think, a long, long way. I think it's a much more engaging experience to be a student where we all go to school here in Toronto than it was 20 years ago, but there are still things that should be there that are missing. Um, at 30,000 feet, I would say this, what is the goal of education in a school? Well, it's to, it's to provide experiences that stick. You know, statistics, information, knowledge, but also experiences that stick, that don't just land and then fall off. So if we want to be successful and have things stick, to me, we ought to be thinking a lot about the two parts of the stick, namely the stuff that we want to land on the student and the student that we want the stuff to land on. And I think we spend, I think we do really good work, much better work than we used to in our education systems here on making that stuff more interesting, more engaging, more student-centered, friendlier, way better than it was. But I still think there's not nearly enough on, on the person. You know, I don't meet many kids who've even been taught how they might study best, how that particular student might study best, how they might even like go about taking notes in class. What are you strategically doing while you're sitting in class? You know, you've got this duty to record, right? We're, we're sitting here, we got to record. And then later we got to regurgitate. Okay, how do I record? Well, we just kind of tell them to record. Or, or if, if, we, if we say anything, we just, we, we sort of think it's like the same for everyone. So I wanted to get at the self and have them wrestle with, with their own self, what the word means, um, what they like about it, their own self, how they would categorize their parts, you know, like what, if, if we're a wheel, like what are the different categories of the wheel? What makes you, you, how are you feeling in each of those categories? Is there anything we can do to feel a little better in one or all of those categories, but like actually engaging in how we feel and realizing, because as I made this switch, I had, as I've already said, been through some, some challenging personal stuff in my life and I had had the benefit of some therapy which like completely changed the way I viewed myself and the way that I can feel better you know it got me instead of thinking that I have to find different environments or different like external things to feel better I can just change the way I'm relating so I built it's it's currently it continues to morph but it's currently a three-month experience when someone first signs on um, I don't like to have to worry for the first two or three hours about making immediate impact and keeping the client rolling. So I do like at the outset to have that much of a commitment. And then beyond that, we can stop or we can carry on as long as, as they might like. Um, there's organizational tools, there's learning tools, as I've already said, there's reframing strategies. Um, I, I think it's it's quite a quite an engaging, varied, challenging at times experience. 
and I'm just loving delivering it. The curriculum as it is now in, in schools. So we have in particular, uh, maybe, you know, there's the mandatory civic slash careers, uh, which is maybe a little personal growth oriented. But I think what is missing in the school system is character development, personality growth, um, self-discovery, and, uh, you know, finding direction. Uh, so uh, th these are kind of things that, again, there has been improvement. There, I'm sure there's more infrastructure a little bit and depending on the place, but the kind of attention and care that goes into when, uh, people that are able to do this kind of work for themselves at such a crucial age. Just tell us a little bit about how the impact is, what it's, what it's like, what are, what are people who come to you after a certain amount, they do the three months, what do you think is, is different about them um, after doing this process or starting this process? Hopefully that's going to last them a lifetime. Well, I'm hoping I'm, I'm liking the impact of, of both sides of it. So let's improve some habits that we can improve and some organizational tools to make that happen. But let's also at the same time, pay attention to how we're actually looking at our own performance. I I've, I've had, and I've only been doing this now for about a year and a half. Um, over that time, I've worked with between 60 and 70 young people through this program. And, and in that time, I have met, you know, a concert pianist who, before I discovered that he was a concert pianist, all he said was, I play a bit of piano, but I'm no good. Um, I met a guy who said nothing in his life was feeling sort of, successful or that it had any momentum and then with time i discovered that he actually rides for the canadian youth cycling road cycling team and is among the top students in his year of his program at his university um i i've i've learned that i'm not the only one that had this inner voice that at some really key moments in my life would say the most unsupportive thing imaginable to me so the example I often give as a guy I often give as a guy who grew up playing tennis is, you know, bouncing the ball to hit a serve on an important point, a second serve in particular. I've often had this voice somewhere show up inside me that says something like, you better not double fault here. That'd be really embarrassing. Like as if we'd accept that from anyone else but ourselves. And, and so in very short time, when I have my weekly hour with a client, they're coming back after sometimes only like week three or week four. And they're saying, you know what? It's unbelievable. That, that inner critic thing we were talking about last week, man, do I notice it a lot. I notice it when I'm going to bed and I'm saying to myself, I should try and get to bed a little earlier, like we talked about. Well, then this voice comes and says, yeah, but you're not going to. And then maybe two weeks later, they'll say, but I've added a voice now. So I talk back to him. I say, actually, watch me. <laughs> watch me do that. I'm going to do it. So these, these sometimes, sometimes the kid immediately sees the significance of it, right? But often it's just like, they almost think it's a funny little story they're telling. And I'm kind of sitting here going, that, that could be life-changing. That could be life-altering. If you're talking back to a critical voice, if you're not going to just accept, whether it's from inside, which I think it usually is, or from outside, which it can often be as well, somebody who's putting you down or saying you're not up for that, um, are you sure? So it's it's also when you get on a Zoom call, I mean, I could answer this 20 ways, I feel, but I'm the how the how the young person is even sitting at the beginning of a call 
right? It's, it's the same way we used to, we used to say when we come back from those canoe trips that we were talking about earlier, the boys would come back and I always felt like their shoulders were just a little taller, a little higher. They were feeling so proud. It's the same thing sometimes on the call. You know, it can be quite a few weeks of, like when the call starts, I might not even see them. It's just blackness because they're sitting in their bedroom and there's no lights on and the blinds are closed. And I tell them to put their camera on and they say, no chance. And I say, no, 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 sorry. But like, that's, <laughs> that's we've talked about this. That's a requirement. I need to see you. Um, and how cool is it when you've when you've been dealing with that for a few weeks and then week six, the call starts and I haven't even said hello yet. And I haven't had to ask them how the week was. They're like, so this week, remember when we and, and, and we're just we're going. I just love I just love how um, to me, this is all an extension of education. It's just a different type of learning and a different type of relationship. But it must be so, you know, this, the school system, you're a teacher, you get to. I'm sure you just, whenever there were moments, like you're talking about the canoe trip, that's what you remember. Whenever there's those intimate moments, that's when you were paying attention to it. Wow, that's something I want to be doing. And then a principal, you, I mean, you built a whole infrastructure, which I think is so incredible um, and helped that school develop. But now I th this just sounds like it's coming right back to the beginning and maybe is even more aligned with what you've always wanted to do. Could be. I love it. I like I that idea. Yeah. I, I And the reason why, you know, we went in, for this way in a conversation is because sometimes I ask people, you know, um, I do conversations about careers and this and that, and we learn about it. But I think your story is a reflection of, of career counseling, career movement, playing attention to what other people are saying, figuring out what you're good at, diving deep in, having mentorship, you know, taking, taking risks, um, starting something, taking a leap of, uh, these just, you're just a living example, a living example of this. And I think the, the tools and the skills and the coaching in particular um, will have a link to, to the details of that. Some really incredible stuff. You'll be putting your photo in a, in a, in a special like a diagram of some kind. You're going to be looking at yourself and reflecting and taking time to understand who you are, why you are, what you are at crucial moments of clarification or identification. So that's something special. But Anything that you want to say, you've been working with so many students at so many ages, the people that are listening to this are usually either in that high school or post-secondary age. What do you want to say to them personally, um, based on your story? I want to say, I think it, I, I'm one of these people who thinks it's really hard to be a kid. I think it's been hard to be a kid for as long as I've been alive, but I think it's become much harder in the last about 10 or 15 years. Um, and now tack on to that what we've been through in the last few years, which I think was a period of time that was hardest on youth. A lot of you guys are feeling stuck. I know that because you've told me that, you know, in principal role and, and, and those of you I've met through this coaching, some of you are physically stuck and not really feeling like there's anything that can be accomplished these days. You're just sort of stuck in a cycle of possibly playing video games or, or smoking more weed than you want to, or whatever it might be, but not accomplishing not not building um we can we can absolutely move you towards not feeling stuck anymore two parts number one i think it's important that we will start by trying to make it okay to be exactly where you are i bet some of you who are listening don't feel that it is okay to be where you are well job one is i would like to help convince you that it is it's where you are 
there are reasons why you are where you are that are completely outside of your own control. Uh, it's not about it being anybody's fault, but it's okay to be where you are. But if you're feeling stuck, then it's not okay to stay there. And we can start talking about what some really small steps would be to start a bit of a release and start feeling better. I'd love to help if I can. Thank you so much. So all the links are going to be there. Also look out for Luke also in school to become a psychotherapist as a adjunct to the incredible coaching that can happen. And the marriage between the two could be really, really wonderful. Appreciate just learning about your story, learning a little bit about the school system, the special things that you've done. Uh, and for people listening, also, I would recommend getting in touch with Luke if you run some sort of educational program, school, camp, things like that. There's a, there's a secret sauce, I believe, that Luke has come on to through the work he's done with Blythe. And I hope I hope maybe that could be a, a, a side thing for you. And if, and if you're not interested, Luke, then you can also say, but I, I thought I'd put that out there. I'm super interested. And I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. And of course, a disclaimer. This podcast and all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. Go to www.resolve2vs.ca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www.resolve, that's resolve with two Vs, .ca, to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Till next, next time, take, take care. care. Theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro in their song Midnight Empty Street. <laughs>